We have been in Hebrews 6 uh, for the last few weeks. So two weeks ago, we, we kind of took the passage, difficult passage. It is impossible for those who were once enlightened, taste the heavenly gift, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. So if you want to know what that means, two weeks ago, go back, watch, it was a whole sermon. Last week, we dove in, though, to the question because some think that idea of falling away is losing your salvation. So we asked the question, can a Christian lose their salvation? And that was last week. After the service last week, somebody came up and said, all right, so the book of Hebrews is a lot about inheritance. It's a lot about our reward. It's looking ahead. Well, if you can't lose salvation, can you lose reward? Can you lose inheritance? And how does all that work? Because there's a sense of fairness there. I go, man, that's a great question. My plan was today to actually jump back into Hebrews 6 in an expository type way and kind of try to finish it up. But what I want to do today, um, if, if you're there in here, let me get to Hebrews 6. There we go. Uh, I want to read verses 9 to 12, but I really want to kind of jump off and talk about this idea of how do rewards fit into all of this, into this idea of falling away, you can't lose your salvation, but what about losing rewards? And then next week, we'll actually kind of then really go a little deeper into the passage here. So let's read Hebrews 6, verses 9 to 12. But beloved, we are convinced convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and practice inherit the promises. So he's looking ahead to this promises, this inheritance. This has been really the theme of the book of Hebrews of don't quit, don't be sluggish, don't drift, but focus because it comes with great promise. And in a sense, this kind of deals with that question of accountability or maybe the better way to put it, the sense of justice. Justice. You know, God has put within each of us a sense of himself, right? We were created in his image. And if you've never read uh, C.S. Lewis' book, Mere Christianity, highly recommend it. But this is kind of his argument. That you see within people all across the world, all across the ages, a sense of right and wrong, a sense of fairness. And so the question becomes... All right, so if we can't lose our salvation, then how, how is there fairness when you have maybe one believer who ends up at the barrel of a gun, giving his life, not denying the name of Christ, walking in faithfulness like Paul who ends up, you know, getting his head cut off. How is it in the fairness 
that it's the very same thing then for somebody who maybe shrinks back, someone who falls away. Like these believers that the, the writer of Hebrews is writing, right? They're facing persecution, so they're thinking about stepping back from Christianity in order to get away from persecution. How is all that fair? How is it all just? And really, when you think about inheritance, this, this becomes, I think, that sense of, of what he's talking about here. You'll notice in verse 10, for God is not unjust, so as to forget your work. Let me, let me maybe illustrate it with a story. It, it, this is a fictitious story, though parts of it may have been true, all right? But it's a fictitious story. Uh, many of you know, Tammy and I have three children. Uh, we, we have Jamie, he's our oldest. Uh, and by the grace of God, with no plan on our part, it actually ended up that, most, uh, that our kids are about four years apart. So we never ended up with two of them in college at the same time. Praise Jesus, I will forever be thankful for that. But the fictitious story, Jamie's 18, senior in high school, obviously can drive, mature, developed. JJ, our middle one, would have been about 14, uh, eighth grade, middle school. You know middle schoolers, right? Um, Unique. Uh, Kylie, our youngest, would have been 10, uh, late grade school. And Tammy and I, wanting to go away, uh, have some time away, and so we're going to go away for a couple nights, and we're going to leave them to fend for themselves, but also to help take care of each other, but, of course, with some jobs to do, with some things to get done by the time we get home. There are rooms to clean, there's trash to be taken out. We detail for each of them what we want them to do, and then we take off. And by the way, when we leave... It's always in the middle of the week. So it was Thursday night, Friday night, get home on Saturday because I have this weekend gig that I have to do. So we take off on Thursday night and we're, we're going to go have some time to ourselves. And, and Jamie being the, the good big brother, the mature one, kind of saw his list of chores that he needed to do. And the promise was that when we got home, we would... if. The, we would pay them commissions, right? So if you're uh, in FPU, you know, Dave says, never give kids an allowance. That's like communism, right? You give them commissions, right? They work, they get paid. They don't work, they, they don't get paid. Well, Jamie wanted to set a good example for his brother and his sister. Went about doing the things that he needed to do. He got his room clean. There was some stuff in the backyard that he needed to clean up, trim. He got it all done. He's encouraging his brother and sister to do the same thing. But of course, he's JJ's a middle schooler, right? He's playing on his DS. He'll get to it. He's got to Sunday. He's got to Saturday morning when we get home. Don't worry about it. Kylie's all tired from school, and she she's just kind of watching her shows. So it's no big thing. Friday happens. They come home from school. JJ's all excited because it's worked out. He's going to get to go over and to spend the night with his cousin Mitch. Any of you remember Mitch? Right? They were like brothers. 
And Jamie is saying, well, listen, wait a minute. You, you've got jobs. You've got a room to clean. You were supposed to take out the trash. You're supposed to do this. I, I'll get it done. I'll get back home in the morning. I'll get it done. Kylie, at the same time, was talking to some of her friends at school who want to come over and spend the night. They want to have a slumber party out in the loft. Well, what about your room? You're supposed to get that done. I'll do it in the morning. So her friends come over. Now we roll into Saturday morning. Jamie is a little dis distress, but he actually looks outside. He was supposed to trim some stuff in the backyard. He had gotten that done on Thursday, but he actually sees some stuff out in the front yard. He goes, man, I could do that. So he goes out and gets to work. Kylie wakes up. Her friends go home. She realizes not only is the room a mess, but the loss a mess. So maybe we need to start cleaning up the loft a little bit, putting some of the, the sleeping bags away. JJ comes home from Mitch, and of course, he heads up to the room, but like most middle schoolers, he decides to jump on his DS. He lays down in bed. He falls asleep. The next thing he hears, the garage door starting to go up. Panic. Have any of you been in that place in your life? Now, let me ask you. As we look around and see what's been done and what's not done, if I took a $50 bill and I gave that to Jamie, and I took another $50 bill and gave it to JJ, who did absolutely nothing, and another one to Kylie, who didn't do much, is that fair? See, the issue of reward is not about the issue of relationship, right? We're not kicking JJ out of the family. It's not that he can't enjoy being a part of the family, but, but there's this issue of fairness. And so when you think about inheritance, when you think about reward, the Bible actually talks about two types of inheritance, a promised inheritance which speaks to every child of God, and a potential inheritance. The promise inheritance is spoken of in 1 Peter chapter 1. It says this, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, that doesn't fade away. So every child of God has a promised inheritance. We have eternal life, to be absent from this body, to be present with the Lord. We're going to walk with Jesus, right, for eternity. You know, you, you read about the new Jerusalem, there's no temple for the Lamb is there. He is the light. We all get to experience that. We all get to experience the reunion with, with, with loved ones. That is promised inheritance. That doesn't get affected. But beyond that, there's potential inheritance. That God is going to give commission for those who serve faithfully. I think this is at the heart of what Jesus says in his last words to us in the book of Revelation. Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render every man according to what he has done. Oh, by the way, he's talking to believers there. And that, that evaluation, that judgment... The Bible calls it the judgment seat of Christ. It's found in 2 Corinthians. I want you to turn there with me. This is such an important passage. I want to make sure you know where this one is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is talking to believers. Oh, by the way, the context of this is that, hey, we know that if this body were to die, that we have a building of God. Remember the wonderful words to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. That is what's leading up 
here in 2 Corinthians 5. So he's talking to Christians. Verse 9, therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So three things. Number one, we're all, even as the children of God, going to stand and give an account. Secondly, Jesus is the judge. So you know it will both be fair and just, but you also know it will be thorough. Remember in Matthew where Jesus says, you know, you gave a cup of cold water in my name. He knows it all. The third thing that we see in this passage is that the picture here of the judgment seat is like it's a raised platform. And it could have been in a judicial setting, but most likely the idea that he has here is like the judging of the Olympic Games. In the Colosseum, in the different Colosseums around of that time, they would put a raised stand in the floor of the Colosseum where the judges would watch the different races and then from there they would give the wreath to those who ran the best. And that's really the idea of the judgment seat of Christ. Not to whether we get into heaven or not. Not to whether we are God's children or not. But who ran the best? It's the heart of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? So run in such a way that you win. Everyone who competes in the, you know, the games here exercise self-control. Why? Because they want to win. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So, we're all going to stand and give an account. The judgment seat of Christ. This is about reward. This is about inheritance. That raises the question, well, how do we know if we ran well? What is it that God is looking for? So, if you got your Bibles, we're in 2 Corinthians 5. Just go back a few pages further to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3 and 4 really deals with the heart of this. If you remember the context, when we studied 1 Corinthians a couple of years ago, Paul has been talking about the idea of living in God's wisdom compared to man's wisdom, right? The things of God are foolishness to, to the unsaved man. So you and I have got to live in God's wisdom and not be carnal and fleshly. That's the context, and so we pick it up here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. He says this, According to the grace of God which is given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So what he's saying is, we have this foundation of Christ, we're supposed to be living on mission, you can build with two types of things, you can build with the expensive stuff, the gold 
and the silver and the precious stones, which implies, you know, it takes time to mine that. It takes time to use that. It's with great cost or the wood, hay, and stubble. You can just, you know, do it haphazardly. And what he's saying is this is what's going to happen in the valuation. The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Verse 14, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. So this isn't a salvation issue. This isn't about whether we get into heaven or not. These are the children of God, but we are going to stand and give an account. And the first thing he's looking at is he's looking at our works and our deeds. And I think by the context, did they align with his word? Did we walk in God's truth? Did we live every day anticipating that we were going to stand before Jesus? Did we live according to what God's word told us in purity and holiness? It comes with great reward. The second thing is over in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ, stewards that's the key word of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is re required as stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. He uses the word stewardship. It's the picture of a slave, a trusted slave who has relationship, who is put over what belongs to the master. Uh, if you're reading through the Bible this year, probably not that recent, that long ago, you would have been in the last part of Genesis. And we read about Joseph. And Joseph, you know, was sold into slavery. And then Potiphar bought him. Potiphar got to know him, saw he was trustworthy, made him his steward, put his whole house underneath. Joseph took care of everything. Later on, Pharaoh did the same thing for the whole land of Egypt. Joseph was a steward. The idea is, is that what we have doesn't belong to us. It belongs to God. It's given to us to steward, to do with it as we think Jesus would want us to. So what have we been given? Well, I think the number one thing we've been given is time. We've been given 24 hours a day, 60 minutes an hour, 365 days. We don't know how long. There's not a thing we can do to add it. We can't prolong it. It's just a gift. Are we investing our time in the things that Jesus would want us investing time in? We have money, right? That's a possession. All that I have belongs to him. Am I spending my money on the things that Jesus would? Do I have the same priorities, our possessions, our gifts? Right? We've all, every child of God has been given a spiritual gift. Are we using it the way Jesus would want us to use it? We've been given relationships. Are we fostering those relationships in the way that Jesus would want? That's the second thing. Were we faithful with what he's given us? The third thing speaks of motivation. Is there in chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. But wait till the Lord comes who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. Then each man's praise will come to him from God. The motives of the heart. Well, what's our motive supposed to be? Isn't it love? 
that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Funny thing is, this is where sometimes people push back at the idea of rewards. Because, well, I'm doing it for the reward, but not out of love for Jesus. No, Jesus equates doing it for reward as love for him. In fact, Paul started this with this whole idea of we all want to be pleasing to the Lord. We want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, right? That is how you love the Lord your God. You live in faithfulness. You live according to his word. You choose to do what's right even when everybody's pushing against that because you love him more. And that comes with great reward. That is the, the, what the inheritance is based upon. Now, when we look at inheritance, it's really expressed a number of different ways in Scripture. Probably the way that we're most familiar with. So when we think about reward, the, the way the Bible expresses it that most people are familiar with are the idea of crowns, right? The crowns. There are four crowns that are actually listed in Scripture. I don't have time to go into them in much depth, so if you want to, that's where their Scripture are. Here's the problem with crowns, though. As many of you know, in Greek, they often had more words like love. We got one. They, you have three or four of them, right? And so you kind of got to know. Same thing with crowns. When we think crowns, we hear crowns, what do we think? We think of a king's crown. But that's not the word that is used. It, it's not a king's crown because there's only one king. His name happens to be Jesus, correct? The crowns, when it talks about this inheritance, is the victor's crown. It's the, the wreath that was woven often of, um, of oak or sometimes was made of gold, but but, but oak leaves. It was given to those that ran the best in the Olympic Games. It was often given by the emperor to a general who had a great victory. And so he would come marching into the city after the victory and he would receive the victor's crown. That's the idea here. And when the Bible talks about crowns, these are the four it mentions. The crown of life are for those who face persecution and suffering for the cause of Christ, but they endure. The, the crown of righteousness is, Paul says, is those that look for the Lord's appearing. It doesn't mean you, you, know, you stare in the sky every day. It's just that you live your life knowing we're going to stand and give an account. We live for Jesus, right? We are looking and anticipating that one day the garage door is going to go up. Right? And, and, and we're, we're anticipating that in a good sense. The crown of joy really is the crown of the soul winner. It's the persons who live and share Jesus. And it's the people who will be with them in eternity because of their life. The crown of glory is an interesting one. It's actually a crown that Peter says it's specifically for those who elder well, who shepherd well. That one humors me a little bit. I guess Peter, by this time in his life, had been an elder a long time, and he found out, like most elders do, that sheep sometimes bite. They can be somewhat hard-headed. 
So he talks about a crown of glory for those that shepherd well. So the first way inheritance is spoken of is the idea of crowns. Another way it's spoken of is leadership in the kingdom of God. So, so Jesus is going to return, set up his kingdom. Think about it this way. When God put everything in this perfect world, he told man to be fruitful, multiply, rule, and subdue the earth. Man sinned. Who became the ruler of the earth? Satan. He's the prince of power of the air, the ruler of this world. We've, we've already looked at that. And in the day to come, he didn't subject the rulership of the world to angels, but to man. And so Jesus comes back, the perfect God-man, he's going to rule and reign. The idea is we're going to rule and reign with him. Revelation 20, blessed and holy is the one who is a part of the first resurrection. This is, this is when Jesus returns. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him. We're going to rule and reign. I think this is the heart of what Paul is telling Timothy. Uh, if we endure, we will reign with him, right? This is part of our reward. But if we shrink back, we deny him then we won't have that privilege in the world that is to come. Another part of our inheritance is the recognition of the master. In fact, I don't know if you're still here in 1 Corinthians 4 or 5, but it says he comes and he will disclose the motives of men's hearts Then each man's praise will come to him from where? From God. The words of affirmation from our God. You know, Jesus put it like this in, in Matthew. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Can you imagine looking into the eyes of Jesus and seeing the scars? And, and in love, he says, listen, well done. I mean, I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but you kind of wonder, will Jesus be high-fiving? Well done. In fact, when Luke tells that same parable, he acts like he has just a hair of a twist, which I think really speaks to the idea of ruling and reigning with Christ. He said to him, well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be an authority over 10 cities. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. There's another way that is expressed. Sometimes people push back at, and that is, I think, the idea of companionship with Christ. We've looked at this in the book of Hebrews. We're a partaker. The word means companionship. That we walk with him. That we have relationship with him. Hebrews 3.14 says, For we have become partakers and companions of Christ. If, so when that if pass, if we hold fast the beginning of the assurance. And again, sometimes, again, people push back. Are there going to be two classes of people in heaven? The answer is no. We're all the children of God. We all belong to him. We're going to walk with him in light. We're all going to have relationship with him. But we really ignore the teaching of Scripture, if we don't understand that there were different levels of relationship that people had with Jesus when he was here the first time. So, so we see at the day of Pentecost, there were 120 that knew and followed Jesus. We know that there were 70, probably mostly a part of that group, who actually commissioned and sent out. 
Of the 70, there was even a smaller circle of 12 that he took with him. Of the 12, were there not three that he kind of would take with him up onto the Mount of a, a Transfiguration or into the room to heal the little daughter? And of that, isn't there one of the three named John who was called the disciple that Jesus loved? It's not that, that somehow you're in the 120 that, that you're not loved. It's just, it's a different relationship. And doesn't it make sense that those who have walked most with Jesus in this life and have a deeper relationship with him now would have a deeper relationship with him there? It's part of our inheritance. I've got to hurry. What about loss of, of inheritance? The Bible does speak and say, okay, so this is where the fairness comes. We're all saved by grace because it's not fair that any of us could, could stand before God apart from Jesus because none of us are righteous. So it's all fair. He's the just and the justifier because it's the blood of Christ. But now as the children of God, the Bible says that, hey, we have the privilege to both gain reward or to lose reward. You go back to that passage in 1 Corinthians 9 we started with, where Paul talks about they do it for a perishable wreath, victor's crown. We do it for imperishable. It's very interesting. The very next verse, it changes. Not we and us. becomes very personal. I. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in a way as not beating the air. I discipline my body, make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. We talked about that. That's not unsaved. It just means worthless. It's, it's, it's the same word he uses earlier in Hebrews 6. That, that I don't mess this up, that I don't lose reward. That's why. You remember when Paul comes to the end of his life and some of the last words he wrote were there in 2 Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I've kept the faith. See, Paul was concerned about this, even for himself. John puts it like this in 2 John 1.8, watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Remember what we saw in 1 Corinthians. If any man's work remain, he'll receive a reward. If any man's work are burned up, he will suffer loss, not salvation. In fact, if you remember even back in, in the book of Hebrews, where, where we started this morning, this idea that if we remain steadfast, right? So the hope of the promises, it's right there in verse 12, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Folks, here's the heart of it all. How we live today matters. This is why it's not just about coming to church or, or just about checking off boxes. This is about engaging with God. It matters. It matters today because I happen to believe that the best way to live life is to live it with Jesus. But it not only matters today, it matters in the life to come. Because one day Jesus is going to return. One day we're going to hear the trumpet sound. One day, the garage door is going to start going up. 
John says this in 1 John 2, 28. Now little children abide in him. Relationship, engage, follow Jesus. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him. Are we going to be like the one who not only did, but we even did extra? Tammy and I show up, the garage door goes up. Guess who's there to meet us at the door? It's Jamie. Hey, guess who we didn't see for a while? JJ. He's asleep in his bed, hiding in his room, throwing stuff in the closet. Sometimes people say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought my sin was all forgiven. I thought my sin would never be remembered again. You're correct about whether we get into heaven or not. But if sin keeps us from doing what Christ wanted us to do, it still will have an effect, right? If we lived in sin so that we didn't live for Jesus, it has an effect. It's not held against us in the sense of, oh, you can't go to heaven but it affected the way we lived. And so, folk, here's the thing. We are saved by grace and by grace alone. None of us deserve that. It's apart from works. You can't work your way into heaven. That is by grace. But once by grace we become part of the family of God, we are given an inheritance. Some of it promised. Every child of God will get it. But some of it potential. And we have the opportunity to serve. My dad used to put it like this. It's the best deal known to man. Jesus saves you for nothing and then pays you for everything you do for him. Reward. 